0: There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on, Year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So far the reading.
1: Let's pray together, shall we? Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that um, you speak to us um, by your word and through your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you encourage us, comfort us, you challenge us, uh, you instruct us. And we pray, Lord God, that you would do that again this morning. Uh, Please open up our ears and our hearts um, that we might hear from and learn from you that it might result in glory and honor to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning is uh, week three of a series within a series. Um, The wider series that we are in at the moment is a series called Got Questions, where we are considering some of the tougher questions and issues that we have as Christians uh, in Australia in the 21st century, and the in a series that we've been in for a couple of weeks already is called Life and Death, where we've been thinking about what the Bible says about the start and the end of life. And so far, we've covered uh, euthanasia, and last week, we looked at abortion uh, from God's Word. Now, in a way, so far in this series, it's been possible to look at these issues somewhat clinically and to hold them at somewhat arm's length. Yes, they're important, uh, and yes, there are issues in there which are, are close to us, but it's been a little bit easy to sort of look at them and examine them from the outside. But this one's not quite so easy to do because today we're looking at issues of conceiving a child, that struggle to conceive a child, and some of the therapies that are available that can assist us and assist people in conceiving and bearing children to birth. You see, this is not so easy to hold at arm's length. And it's not so easy to look at clinically. Because behind the therapies and behind the science is a really deep and an emotional and a spiritual struggle. The struggle to conceive and to bear children. And you can't look at that clinically. And you can't hold it at arm's length. You see, we read the story, don't we, of, of Hannah in 1 Samuel. And many of us would have read it before. And we read it and we feel and we sense her pain and her anguish. That year after year, she prays and she tries and she desires, but it doesn't come. We understand the sense of jealousy, don't we? That she has a rival who who keeps producing children. We understand her sense of frustration. We understand the depth of her cry to God. God, would you answer my prayer and give me a child? We could have looked at a number of Bible passages with similar stories. Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebecca, uh, Jacob and Rachel, Jacob and Leah, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth in the New Testament. Heart-wrenching stories of people who honestly desire children, and yet they can't have them. The reality is, is that this, this is a story and a theme and a reality for people from this church as well. Statistically, one in six uh, couples will experience difficulty in conceiving a child. If we are a church of about 35 families, that means that there will be six families, if we are average, everyday, typical, who have, who are, or who will experience difficulty conceiving and carrying a child to full term. Many of us have walked alongside people who have been through this journey. We know the pain, the anguish, the jealousy, the feelings of isolation that this can bring. And many of us, if not most of us, will have dealt with and interacted with people who are having this struggle and yet not knowing. Because so often it is a struggle which is carried out in silence. And so can I can I say this? And if this sermon has points, this is probably point one, sort of one of those that rambles a little bit. Can I say this? That that desire and that longing to have children is a legitimate desire. And that pain and that anguish which, and that grief which is caused by the difficulty in conceiving and carrying children is a legitimate pain and anguish and grief. That desire to have to bear children is actually a God-given desire. We believe that we are created in the image of God, male and female. Created in the image of a God, the God who gave and created life. Part of being created in his image means that when we come together as man and woman and we form a new family, we, carrying his image, desire emotionally, physically, relationally to bring children into the world. That's a legitimate God-given desire. Now, we've got to be careful because there are some passages in the Bible and we don't have time to look through them all which suggests that the inability to carry children is a curse from God and the ability to bear and carry children is a sign of God's blessing on your life. We've got to understand that when it talks like this, the Bible is talking about the effects of sin throughout creation. God designed us to have children. Part of being unable to conceive is part of the curse of sin in this world, which causes all of the suffering and the mess and the difficulty and hardship of this world and this creation. It is not how God intended it. But also, we can't align one-to-one our sin and the ability to have or to not conceive children. And so, can I say this? That if you're in this position right now, or you've been in this position, or you find yourself in this position in the future, your pain and your anguish is real, and it's legitimate, and it's understandable. Your desire to have children is not sinful, it's not selfish. It's not disobedient. That desire is actually a desire given to you by God himself. Can I also say that God knows and God cares very deeply about your grief and about your sorrow. And I believe that God weeps and grieves alongside those who weep and grieve for the lack of children. Just as Jesus stood by the graveside of a friend and wept as he saw the results of sin, of the curse in this world, he weeps and he grieves alongside those who struggle to bear children. He knows of the disappointment. He cares about your struggle And your difficulties. And I know that sometimes it can feel very isolating. And it can even feel like in the church that you're not really a member until you've produced some children yet. And we'll talk about that in a while. But you're never alone with God. He walks alongside us. He carries our burdens and our sorrows. He calls us to cast our burdens on him. Because he cares for us. And if we're walking and we walk that journey alongside people, let's remember that the grief and the sorrow is legitimate grief and sorrow. People can't just get over it. And can't just move on from it. Yes, knowing God gives us strength. And he gives us endurance and he gives us comfort and he answers prayers. But sometimes that desire will never go away. And that grief will always be with us. So let's acknowledge that as we walk alongside people. Well, then the question remains, if that's the first point, and the second one. The question goes, well, what, what can we do about it? And in particular, uh, how... Should we think about those treatments, those therapies, uh, which assist in the conception and the carrying of children? Uh, Before we get on to that, uh, let me just also mention that aside from looking at these things, there are other things that Christians can do as well. And Megan Best, um, who some of us have heard speak recently, who was in town, and has written a a fantastic book um, called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And if you want to know more about this, I'd encourage you to get and to read that book. She suggests that there are four four things that all Christians can do if they find themselves in this position. Four things that are okay. She says, firstly, it's okay to do nothing. It's okay if we find ourselves in that place uh, to do nothing about it. To come to the conclusion that it's not God's plan and his design for us to have children. That's an okay decision to come to. Secondly, she says it's okay for people to wait before doing anything else. Only 85% of couples will fall pregnant within the first uh, 12 months of trying, which is the the time which is considered to be a time after that of infertility. Uh, Many couples will conceive naturally without assistance in years two and three and beyond. So it's okay to wait. Thirdly, it's okay to get tests To see what's going on. To see why or why not this might be taking place. In some cases there are medical reasons which can even be rectified to help in the conception of children. It's okay to get those tests to see what is going on. And fourthly, she says, it's okay to adopt. It's okay to adopt children that are not your own. Whether they be from Australia or overseas. Whether it even be embryo adoption, which we'll have a talk about later or to spiritually adopt uh, other people's children uh, into your family. These things are okay and good answers for Christians to come up to. But what about going broader? And what about going to what is known as uh, ART, Assisted Reproductive Therapies? How should Christians think about these, and how should we get involved? Firstly, a definition. What is ART? I've written it down. This is the definition given by the University of New South Wales. Assisted reproductive therapy is a group of procedures which involve the in vitro, so the outside of human body, handling of eggs and sperm or embryos for the purpose of establishing a pregnancy. It's those medical procedures which take place outside of us and in a laboratory which assist and aid in the producing, the conceiving, and the bearing of children. Now, there are a number of uh, different varieties of ART. There's over 20 of them. But central to all of them is the process of IVF, in vitro fertilization. This has been a technology which has been around for about 37 years now. first child conceived and born of IVF was in 1978. Australia had its first IVF baby born in 1980, only the third IVF baby uh, to be born in the world. Since that time, over five million children uh, have been conceived and born uh, using IVF or various technologies. The typical IVF cycle uh, consists of a few different stages. Uh, Typically, uh, firstly, a a woman will start by receiving hormone injections uh, with the intention that multiple eggs will be produced uh, at the one time. Uh, Following that comes what they call harvesting, Uh, the retrieving of both eggs and sperm uh, from both the mum and the dad. Uh, Then will come fertilisation of egg and sperm, uh, which takes place uh, in a laboratory. And after about five or six days, uh, usually will then come the implantation of an embryo uh, into the mother. Uh, In most cases, this is one embryo, and in uh, a few exceptional circumstances, Uh, this can actually be two or sometimes more, but not usually in Australia. And at the end result uh, is pregnancy is hoped for and then eventually a birth. Now around that, there are about 20 other different procedures uh, and technologies that take place of various uh, variations. And in in that, there is a a subgroup which is called uh, third-party reproduction. And so this is a case in which Uh, not just the sperm and the egg from the mum and the dad, but consist of maybe an egg donation, uh, sperm donation, uh, embryo donation, uh, or cases of surrogacy uh, where a third party carries uh, the child. The University of New South Wales produces an annual report on uh, ART technologies in both Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Their latest report, which is available, which was from 2014, um, says that there were 12,875 babies born in Australia in 2014 from ART uh, from 67,000 cycles or therapies. Uh, that's a success rate across the board of about 18%. That figure is significantly higher if you're younger and is lower if you are older. Now, obviously, this is a really Complex issue, and there are lots and lots of things to think about and to take into consideration when we consider a Christian and a biblical response to them. Christians generally respond in three different ways, very broad ways. Firstly, uh, some Christians decide that they will have nothing to do uh, with any of it, Uh, it's too complex, or for whatever reason, uh, it's too complex, or it's too many difficulties, there's too many dangers. A Christian will say, I'm not going to participate that at all. The uh, second option is that some Christians say, I'm going to participate in all of it. Uh, God has given us the technology. God has enabled the research. God has given us all these things. I am going to go into all of it. And yet other Christians will take a medium ground and say, well, I'm going to enter into it with certain guiding principles with certain principles which will shape what I do participate in and what I am unwilling to participate in. It's that middle ground and that middle group I want us to think about for a moment and think about what are some of the principles that could help us, guide us in making some of those decisions. Let me go through five of them that can guide us in this. The first one is this. Children are a gift but children are not a right. Children are a wonderful gift from God, created in his image, have value and worth and dignity. They are a blessing from God, but they are not a right that we can demand from God. They are not a right which we can demand from science. One of the difficulties in thinking about these different treatments is that at the end of the process, if it all works out, we have a a child who is a wonderful blessing from God. Created in the image of God, a gift from God, uh, carries all dignity and respect of human life to be loved, cherished, and adored. Cute, cuddly, and we fall in love with it, and we should do. But the struggle is that sometimes we can use that gift as an ends to justify the means. Children are a gift, though, but they are not a right that we can demand from God. Secondly, just because we can doesn't mean that we should. It's a principle that we have for lots of areas of life. Just because we can doesn't mean that we should. Medical science and advances and technologies are a wonderful gift that God has given this world. Creative minds to think and explore and examine and come up with new techniques, they are wonderful gifts that God has provided His world, His creation. We use technology and we use medical advances all the time. Every time we use our mobile phone, every time... We play musical instruments that require power, if the power is working. Uh, Every time we use the internet, we are using advances in science and technology. Every time we go to the doctor and take a pill, every time we get a part of our body fixed and patched up, uh, we are using wonderful advances in science and technology and in medicine. We can't say that science is the problem. And we can't say that using these things is playing God, because it means that we're playing God in a whole lot of other areas of life. The problem is not with the technology. But here's the principle. Just because we can doesn't mean that we should. Just because science has enabled it doesn't mean that we should go down that line. We must be guided by something else than just what is possible. Third principle that we need to consider that needs to guide us is that life begins at fertilization. Life begins at conception. This is where we spent a lot of time looking last week, and if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to listen to it online. Traditional Christian view has been uh, that life begins at the moment of the sperm and the egg, the moment of fertilization. This is where life as a gift from God, and the image of God begins, and there is no reason to move away from that. The difficulty when it comes to IVF and other ART is that this principle is often not upheld by those who are practicing the science. The things vary from clinic to clinic, but a general typical IVF cycle will look something like this. Usually about 11 eggs are harvested and out of that 11, about 9 will be considered healthy enough to go to the next stage. 9 will attempt to be fertilized and a typical cycle will see about 7 of them fertilized. And when it comes today, about 5 or 6 between three or four in a typical cycle will be considered healthy enough for implanting. That's all good for the embryo which is implanted. In Australia, uh, laws vary from state to state, but generally only one uh, embryo will be implanted for a first child. Uh, maybe two embryos uh, for subsequent children will be implanted. And the difficulty comes when we believe that life begins At conception, at fertilization, is what happens to the rest. Typically, these are either destroyed or they are cryopreserved. When they are cryopreserved, they are there for either use in further IVF cycles or therefore embryo donation, which is very rare, or eventually they too are destroyed. It's believed that there are about 120,000 embryos in cryopreservation uh, in Australia at the moment. As people who believe that life begins at fertilization, the destruction of embryos should be of deep concern to us. And for some Christians, the reality that that happens means that they move away from the whole process altogether and determine that it's not for them. But if we are going to explore that and go down that line, we are going to have to do it in a way that determines that no embryos are going to be destroyed. I don't know the industry from the inside only from what I've been able to look at from the outside. From what I can see, that is possible, but it is very difficult and requires great determination and clarity on behalf of the people who are engaging in it because that is not a position that the industry holds. Fifth and final, no, we're up to fourth. Uh, fourth uh, guiding principle all life is created in the image of god we saw this from genesis 1 and 2 over the last couple of sundays all life is created in the image of god and to be, deserves to be treated with respect and dignity and protected and protectively protected the life of the vulnerable One of the growing industries around IVF is PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. For about $700 to $1,000 as you go through your IVF cycle, uh, you can have a pre-implantation genetic test of all of the embryos to see what is going on there. This is done uh, so that the healthiest embryos are implanted This is also done so that if there's any difficulties or abnormalities picked up, those embryos can be destroyed. Even conditions which are commonly repairable and fixable are seen as grounds for the destruction of an embryo. There is a current debate happening in Australia that even gender selection uh, can be allowed for couples having their third or subsequent children for family balancing purposes. If we believe that life is created in the image of God and is valuable and to be protected, we should be concerned about procedures which are selecting and deselecting embryos on the basis of some test done before a child is even born. This should be of deep and of great concern to us. And fifth and final guiding principle is love for our neighbor. In all of our actions, we want to think about not only what honors God and what loves him, but what is loving towards our neighbor. And particularly, as we've been going through this series, we've been thinking about what is loving and takes care of the weakest and the vulnerable. When we come to issues of third-party treatments, this is an area we, we particularly need to think about. In cases where there is egg donation, there is risk put at place of the egg donator in terms of hormone injections and the procedure which is used uh, to harvest the eggs. There are cases where vulnerable people put themselves forward for egg donation for financial gain. We want to be careful about opening that door then for the abuse of those who are suffering disadvantage. In the case of surrogacy, we find that this is widely open for abuse, particularly the abuse of the vulnerable. Only about 14 countries around the world allow for surrogacy and only a handful of countries allow for surrogacy for payment, uh, commercial surrogacy. When payment is made, there is a particular opening for the economically vulnerable to be taken advantage of. This only occurs in countries where the whole procedure is poorly regulated and where people who are wanting to get an economic advantage in life put themselves forward. It's seen as a chance to escape poverty. Not only is there this concern, but in surrogacy there is a natural bond which forms between a mother and a child which is contractually bound to be broken. It opens up the potential for emotional harm and damage to both gestational mother and to child. In the wide variety of third-party cases, we have children growing up with mixed parentage and the potential for confusion about what their origins actually are. Now obviously the whole issue of ART is complicated and it's difficult and there's probably other things we could take into consideration as well. But let me just, let me just say, if we're going to look into this and if we're going to go down this line, here are four things that we, I think we need to do. Firstly, we need to be certain about what principles are going to guide us before we go into it. The reality is the industry doesn't have those principles. And it doesn't have those same concerns. And we will find ourselves uh, wanting to bend our principles further and further for the end result of wanting to have a child. So know our guiding principles well. Secondly, seek wise advice. Seek the advice from others who have thought about this, who have researched it, who may have gone down the line themselves and particularly listen to the advice of people who think differently from us it's easy to listen to the advice of people who agree with us isn't it but how about the advice of those who make different choices thirdly pray for wisdom pray that god is the one who guides us by his word by his spirit by his people pray that he gives us deep wisdom as we consider these issues and fourthly Keep the desire to honor God and the desire to protect human life above the desire to have a child. Keep that first priority as the priority to love and to honor God with every part of our lives. Well, let me just uh, finish. I know this has been long, and I'm going to repent afterwards, um, I promise you. Let me finish then by thinking even wider. Um, how do we support how do we support people who find themselves in this position, who are going through this? How will we support those who we may not even know are struggling with this? Let me suggest a few things to close. Firstly, um, we need to love people. I know this, in a sense, it doesn't need to be said, but I think it does need to be said. We need to love people. We are to love those who are struggling with the inability to have children. They need our prayer, our support, our encouragement, our friendship. They need us to love them. We need to love those who are weighing up the various options in front of them, and they should know that we love them and care for them very deeply. We need to love those who make choices that are different from the ones that we would Pray for them and encourage them and love them as well. We know to love children who are born into our church community. No matter how they come about or what their uh, origins are, we are to love the kids that God has made a part of us. We love. Secondly, we need to listen. We need to listen to people in their struggles, in their hardship, in the burdens they carry. We need to be slow to speak, but quick to listen as we hear the pain and the struggle that people have as we walk alongside them. We need to give wise, careful advice. Sometimes as we walk alongside people, God will provide us an opening to speak and an opening to input into what people are thinking and what they're going to do. We need to be careful and wise in the advice that we give to people. Understanding what some of the issues are and understanding some of the difficulty and the pain that is involved with us. We need to value the place of all people within God's community, within the family of God. We're a church that is blessed with a bunch of kids, lots of kids. We can't do anything about it. It just is here, and we should be thankful for it. We, we love families, and we want to see families flourish. But at the same time, we are blessed with single people. And we are blessed with blended families and single-parent families. We are blessed with young people, and we are blessed with children, uh, couples without children. And all of us together... Make up a family of God and a church. And every place is valued. And every place is to be honored and cared for. We want to be careful that we don't try and present ourselves as just a family church, which is just attractive and just cares for those families with children. We will respect the place of all people within the church. And finally, and we're going to close here, is that we need to pray. We need to be a praying church for one another, for all of the multitude of burdens and difficulties and struggles that we carry and all of the hard questions that we face. Because we have a God who answers prayers, who listens to his people. We have a God who carries burdens, Who's on the side of the weak and the vulnerable and the struggling who cares about every single part of our lives and whose grace is sufficient for us in every situation so let's pray to him now shall we Lord God we thank you that you love us we thank you that we are your children uh, through the work of Jesus uh, adopted into your family thank you that we know uh, your grace and your comfort and your peace thank you that you walk alongside us in our difficulties and our struggles thank you that you carry our burdens and our pain. Thank you that you are at work recreating this world. Thank you that you are undoing the curse of sin. And that one day you will undo it completely. Forgive us, Lord God, for times that we have failed to love one another. Failed to support each other. To care for each other. Forgive us for the times, Lord God, where we have failed to serve one another as Jesus has served us. We want to pray, Lord God, for those amongst us who have or are facing this difficulty in having children. We pray, Lord God, that you would give them grace in abundance, that you would guide their steps, that you would be near to them, and that you'd enable us to be a loving family around them. We pray for those who who may face the struggle in the future. We ask, Lord, that they would know your grace. They would know your love. They would know wisdom that comes from you. We thank you for one another. We thank you for the church that you have made us to be. With all our differences and uniquenesses, with all our strengths and our struggles. We thank you that we belong to you, and we belong to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.